So we are in Matthew. Today we're going to do Matthew's chapters three and half of four. Not all of chapter four, just a little bit, the first 11 verses of it. And I'm really excited about it because, as I said, I've never really done these passages before. I think it's going to be a good time for us to work through it. But let me remind you the verse that we started this series with last week. It's this. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. You see, the thing that happens at the end of Matthew is Jesus, the one they thought who was going to be their king, is hanging on a cross and he is being crucified. And the people are looking at him and they say this, he saved other people but he doesn't save himself. If, however, he were to come down from the cross, then we would believe in him. You see, all of us have an issue in our lives where we want to put our faith and our trust in the strongest around us. We want to put our faith and our trust in the person who is the most capable. Even if that person is selfish, even if that person is a bully, no matter what, we just want the strongest person to be on our side. If the strongest person is on our side, then if they're being a bully, at least they're not being a bully to us. If they're being selfish, at least their selfishness also benefits us. We're okay with anyone who takes that position, but we don't like being a follower of a leader who won't even stand up for himself. Because if he doesn't stand up for himself, we wonder if he would ever stand up for us. And so the people look at Jesus and they say, well, if he comes down from the cross, then we will believe in him. But if he doesn't come down from the cross, then I'm not so sure. This sets Jesus up as a different kind of leader. But the important thing for us is to, even when, to realize even when they said that, they called Jesus the king of Israel. No book in the New Testament is as focused on this idea as Matthew. The idea that Jesus is the king of all kings, the king par excellence, the king who truly is number one. Last week, we looked at how his genealogy demonstrates that Jesus is the most David of all the kings. He's the most Davidy David, I said, of all the kings. He is, he is David like quadrupled, tripled, David to the third power. Jesus is David better than David. But then we looked at how his birth narrative and the prophecies all come together to foretell that this Jesus is going to be something supremely different. But at the same time, we also understood that Jesus is going to be someone who's unpredictable. This king was born of a virgin. That was unpredictable. This king was visited by wise men from the east. That was unpredictable. This king was given myrrh as an infant gift, a, a, a spice that is used for burial. That was unpredictable. And in all kinds of ways that we studied the origin story, we realized that Jesus is an unpredictable king. And as you will see as we go through Matthew, You will find Jesus to be the king above all kings, and yet a king who is not proud, a king who is not rude, a king who is not self-seeking, a king who changes the very idea of king. So what we're going to do today 
is we're going to dig into not the origin story. We're going to dig into the first victories that Jesus faced, his first battles and his first victories. It starts in Matthew chapter 3, so let me ask you to go there with me. It says these words, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who has spoken through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. By the way, leather belt, I'm wearing a leather belt. But my leather belt was, you know, bought for with money and stuff. John's leather belt was acquired by killing some kind of animal or something. It was just basically a robe strap around his waist. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. The first thing you got to get is a picture of John the Baptist being someone completely uncaring about his self-image. He's a guy who selflessness does not exist for John the Baptist. Anything that could be considered a creature comfort, he doesn't care about. He's literally living in the wilderness. He's literally wearing just camel hair for his clothing. He has a belt around his middle made out of some leather strap he found somewhere just to hold the camel hair to conceal him mostly. And he's eating the stuff he finds out in the wilderness, locusts and wild honey. Everything about John communicates a guy who is demonstrating that he just basically doesn't care about himself. Everything about John demonstrates a selflessness. But beyond that, his message was also a selfless kind of message. John's message was repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And what's interesting about that is that there were a lot of people in John's day who thought that if they could live a perfect life, if they could follow God's law just so, then God would send his Messiah and the entire Roman thing would end and it would be Israel on top again. In fact, that's what the Pharisees were all about. The Pharisees were all about this idea that if we got our lives together, if we followed God's law, if we just did what Moses told us to do, then we'd be able to conquer Rome with a Messiah of our own. But John says something weird. John said, repent, for the kingdom is near. John doesn't say, you need to get your act together so that God will bring the kingdom. John says, you need to get your act together because God is already bringing the kingdom. See, for John, this repentance idea isn't to convince God to show up. It's to prepare us because he's about to show up. See, Matthew says that John was the voice of the one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. I want to take you to that Old Testament passage in Isaiah. 
Now, I mentioned this last week. Matthew is writing to super Jews. He's writing to people who knew that the the name David was equivalent to the number 14. Matthew is writing to people who know their Old Testament prophecies. And so when he writes that this is about that, the one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, he knows that the people's eyes and ears are going to go back to this passage in Isaiah chapter 40, where it says, comfort Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This is a passage that says comfort. God says you have already paid for your sins. Now it's time for me to restore you. It says, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged place is a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. We read this passage sometimes around Christmas time, sometimes around Easter time. It's part of the Hallelujah Chorus by Handel in the Messiah that he wrote and and everything about this passage is so victorious and makes you think oh this is amazing God the glorious creator God is on our side and then it says see the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm see his reward is with him and his recompense recompense accompanies him see when God shows up he's going to show up in glory And some people whose sins have been paid for will experience the comfort and the glory. And some people whose sins have not yet been paid for will face the recompense. See, John says you need to repent because the king is coming. And when the king shows up, there will be comfort. When the king shows up, there will be this glorious thing. But when the king shows up, he's a sovereign king who also is going to bring judgment. So then the next thing John says comes up here in verse 7, Matthew chapter 4. But... Uh, chapter 3. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. File that one away for just a few more minutes. John is saying that God can do whatever he wants with stones. And if God needs something to come out of stones, he can make it happen. God can, God can turn stones into anything that would serve him. But John says the axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who's more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. 
See, for John, this is not a repentance because, oh, the glorious kingdom is about to come and we're all on the winning side. That's not what John is all about anyway. John is like, listen, the king is coming. And there is never, ever, ever in the history of the world a question of whether or not the sovereign king is going to take your side. That's not the way kings work. Kings don't come into this world and then look for their people and say, okay, I think I'm going to be on that person's side. That's not the way kingdoms work. Kingdoms work where the king is the only side. And either you're on his side or nothing. John is like, listen, this king is going to show up and he's not going to be on your side. He's not going to be on my side. We need to be on his side. Repent because the kingdom is coming. And when the king gets here, he's going to look for the people who are already on his side. Now, what makes this especially weird is that John is talking to Jewish people, telling them to be baptized. Now, the reason this is weird is that baptism in the day of John, the guy we call John the Baptist, baptism was a thing that was performed in private in your home if you were a Gentile who wanted to become a Jew. See, if you were a Gentile who wanted to become a Jew, if you were a non-Jew and you wanted to become a Jew, you would go to the priest and you'd say, I'm ready to become a Jew. And the priest would say, okay, if you're a guy, you had to be circumcised. That was a hurdle to go through. But in every other case, and in that case after the circumcision, there was a ritual cleansing that would happen. The priest would give you some instructions. And you would go to your home and you would do this ritual bath ceremony in the privacy of your own home, and then you would report back to the priest that you had done it. And the word baptism was sometimes used for that ritual ceremonial bath you did in the privacy of your own home to become a Jew. Now John is talking to people who are already Jews. There's Pharisees there. There's Sadducees there. They're already Jews. He's right outside Jerusalem. They're already Jews. And he says to them, you need to be baptized. In other words, the point is, and he said it directly to them, don't think you're a child of Abraham and you're somehow going to get through this thing. The point is, it doesn't matter how you were born. It doesn't matter what family you're in. Your family doesn't matter. What matters is who's your king. You or the king who's coming? Because see, all of us have this temptation in our lives to be our own king. Baptism for a Jew is the the symbol of the most incredible surrender. That's a Jew saying, all of my Jewish heritage is worth nothing. I need to become what God wants me to be. Baptism is what the Gentiles would do to become Jews, and so for a Jew to be baptized, he is basically saying, all that I thought was good, Everything that I classified as me, I'm laying it down. Baptism is a picture of the ultimate surrender. I mean, when you go into a big tub of water and someone else dunks you, you usually fight back. But when you're baptized, you're saying, my life is in your hands. And so John is baptizing these people who are already Jews. But baptism 
is this visible, tangible symbol of selflessness and surrender. You see, perhaps you're picking up on this, but the first battle any of us have to fight in our relationship with God is the battle against self. And as a matter of fact, that's the battle that Jesus himself also has to face. Take a look at it with me in Matthew 3.13. It says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Wait a minute. Baptism is a symbol of surrender. Baptism is a symbol of repentance. Baptism is a symbol of laying aside your old life so that you can begin this new life. Jesus is going to be baptized by John. What does that mean? John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? Pause there for just a moment. You have to get the seriousness of this picture. John has just been saying to everybody, the king is coming, that's why you need to be baptized. The king is coming, so you need to be baptized, to be ready for the king. Jesus shows up, and he is the only one about whom John says does not need to be baptized. John looks at Jesus, and he says, no, you're not the one who needs to be baptized. In this relationship, in this connection here, I'm the one who needs to be baptized. Jesus, you need to baptize me, because if the king is coming, and we need to be baptized to get ready for the king, when John sees Jesus, he knows that's the king. The reason John says what he says to Jesus is that he's already convinced that Jesus is the king. And so John himself needs to be baptized. And who better but by the king himself. But Jesus, the king, says, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Of course, if Jesus really is the king, no matter what reason Jesus gives, John should consent. Jesus could give any reason, and if he's the king, John should just go with it, because John's own surrender is to do whatever the king tells him to do. But what's fascinating to me is that Jesus says, we need to do this. It's proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. You see, there's something that John needs to do to enter deeper into righteousness. And there's something that Jesus needs to do to enter deeper into righteousness. But first of all, let me just say that what Jesus is doing here is he's taking John's baptism and he's adding a new layer to it. John's baptism was about repentance. Repentance is about saying no to the life of the past, saying no to the sins of the past. And if you're saying no to the sins of the past, then you can say yes to the righteousness of the future. But John's baptism was all about the repentance, and Jesus says, no, 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 no. Baptism isn't just about repentance. It's not about saying you're sorry for the wrong things you've done. It's about taking your first step of commitment to do all the right things. And so even though Jesus doesn't have anything to repent over because he is the king, even though he doesn't have anything to repent over because he has not sinned, even though he doesn't have anything to repent over, he still has a life of righteousness to lead. And so it is proper, he says, for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. But there's another layer still. Remember when I said baptism was all about surrender? Jesus can fulfill his own righteousness without John's involvement. But there's something that Jesus can't do unless John's involved. And that's surrender. 
You see, by Jesus being baptized, he's letting himself be dunked by John. That's surrender. That's selflessness. John, the greatest preacher of his day, points out to Jesus and he's like, that's the king. And if it were me or you or any one of us, we'd probably just be like, all right, so I don't have to get wet. All right. Okay, everybody, John's done his part. Now I'm here. Let's get it going. John's done his part. Let's roll, baby. Let's roll. Because see, if it were were me or you or any one of us, we would probably take the honor and run with it. But Jesus says, no, there's a thing that has to be done right now. I need to surrender. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but watch what happens next. See, I think Jesus' first battle is with this identity. Someone has just told me I'm the king. Will I still surrender? And he does. As soon as Jesus was baptized... He went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Talk about affirmation that you've done the right thing. Wouldn't that be great? After you've done the right thing, if the voice of God just sort of showered out uh, from heaven on you and all the people around you saying, That's what I'm talking about. He just did it. That's all you guys pay attention to this guy because he just he just did what I'm talking about. Wouldn't that be great if you got that kind of recognition? Well, it's better than that and more confusing than that. You see, about 1500 years before this moment was the previous time God spoke out loud. It hasn't happened often. It's just happened a few times. And before this moment in Matthew chapter 3, It was 1,500 years. See, the last time God spoke out loud was at Mount Sinai, just before Moses went up to the top of the mountain to receive the stone tablets and the rest of the law. All the people had gathered around the mountain, and the voice of God spoke audibly to them. And God said, I am the Lord. The God of your father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who brought you out of slavery in Egypt, you shall have no other gods before me. And he went on to speak the rest of the Ten Commandments out loud to those people. They were so terrified that they said, Moses, don't ever let God do that again. How about you talk to God and then just tell us what he said? So the last time God spoke audibly to people was when he said, You shall have no other gods before me. And the next time God speaks, (laughs) he says, this guy. This guy right here. You guys see this guy? This guy who's coming out of the water all wet? This guy right here. This one. He here is my son. Jesus in that moment has just received acknowledgement from God the Father on high that Jesus himself is somehow divine. 
The phrase God's son was used for kings all over the ancient world, but this one is different. This isn't the king calling himself the son of God. This is God calling the king his son. There was a passage in Psalms written by David that no one thought was a messianic passage because it didn't make sense as a messianic passage, but it did kind of make sense as a king passage. Let me show it to you in Psalm 2, 7. It says this, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've become your father. This is David writing a psalm and he's calling himself God's son because God has made him the king. And the phrase son of God was associated with kings in the olden days, way back in the ancient times. And so David writes this about himself and he's like, yeah, God says to me, you're my son. But no one knew about the extra significance Let me show you all the verses leading up to that. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 6 say this. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his annoying, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. And the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. David says, there are all these kings in the world and all these kings think they've got their act together and God just laughs at them because God says, I've got my king. My king is the one I call my son. And no one knew when David wrote that the extra layer of significance it would have when Jesus comes out of the water And the voice of heaven comes just like it did around Mount Sinai to say, this one. Before it said, no one but me. And now it says, this one. Here's my son. All of a sudden, the idea of God has expanded. In this moment, you might say that this is a perfect illustration, an example of something we call the Trinity. The voice of God is coming from heaven, identifying the Son of God as also being somehow divine, while the Spirit of God descends from heaven to the Son. And you've got all these different things going on there. And I could talk about the, the impact of the Trinity, the relationship of the Trinity, and the doctrine of the Trinity a whole lot, but that's not the point. The point that I want to make here is how much of a king Jesus is. Because not only did God just call him his son, now the Holy Spirit has descended on him. And if you go back to 1 Samuel chapter 10, in verse 1, it says, Samuel took a flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head to anoint Saul, the first ever king of Israel. And he kissed him, saying, has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? The first king of Israel was going to be Saul, and Samuel anoints him with oil to make him the king. And then Samuel describes to Saul what his first act of being king will be. He says, after that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there's a Philistine outpost. By the way, quick comment. The the name of the city is Gibeah of God, but for some reason, there's a Philistine outpost there. If you know anything about Jewish history, you know that if the name is Gibeah of God, there shouldn't be any Philistines there. Someone got to do something about that thing. And Samuel says, you will find a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high place with lyres, timbrels, pipes, and harps being played before them, and they will be prophesying, the Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you'll be changed into a different person. And once these signs are fulfilled, 
do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. The clear implication of that passage is Samuel is saying to Saul, I've anointed you to be the king. Now you're going to get the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes on you, there's going to be a worship moment in there. But then there's also going to be the hand of God with you, the power of God upon you while you are in Gibeah of God right next to that Philistine outpost. Hint, hint, go take them out. In other words, big picture. The Spirit of God is always associated with anointing the king in power. If you were Jesus coming up out of the water, what would that do to you? The Spirit has come upon him. Isaiah 42, 1, it says, Here's my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Jesus coming up out of that water, how would you have felt? The voice of the greatest preacher of your day has just called you the king who is coming. The voice of God in heaven has just identified you as his son, somehow divine. The spirit of God has somehow descended upon you the way the spirit of old would descend through the anointing oil, but now it's not through any mediating thing. It's just the spirit himself coming right upon you. And in that moment, what kind of empowerment would you feel? But don't ever forget that Jesus, this divine Son of God, anointed by the Spirit, King and Judge, was just baptized by a man who eats bugs. Seriously. This whole scene, you can view it from this sort of religious theoretical perspective of Jesus experiencing this this amazing spiritual moment where he is basically coronated, coronated as the king. He's basically given all of the aspects of kingdom. But this dude who wears camel hair, lives in the wilderness, probably smells bad, eats bugs and honey for his whole life, <laughs> is the one who just dunked this guy in the water. See, the story of Jesus' baptism is a story of all these amazing things. It's a story of the king stepping into his kingdom. But it's a story of a king who is absolutely selfless. Jesus' first battle is to come face to face with do I step forward onto the pages of history as a victorious king, like all the kings of the Old Testament said I'm supposed to be? Or do I step on the page of, pages of history and put myself in the hands of the grungiest character in the country and submit myself to his spiritual authority? Jesus' first battle is a battle with self. And he wins in victorious fashion. But he faces more battles. Because in Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, we come across Jesus' most famous 
battles. The battle that he has with the devil in the wilderness over the things that we call his three temptations. Now, he was in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, and the passage tells us that he was tempted by the devil. Look at this. It says, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The Spirit of God doesn't take Jesus to the palace. The Spirit of God doesn't take Jesus to the temple. The Spirit of God takes Jesus to the wilderness where he wanders around for 40 days and 40 nights, kind of like Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. But the Spirit takes him there so that he would be tempted by the devil. Now, I need to give you a couple little disclaimers and caveats about these three temptations that we come across. They're pretty common, pretty popular. People know about these things. Jesus was tempted to turn stones into bread. He was tempted to jump off a high place to prove he's the Son of God. He was tempted to bow down and worship Satan to become the king of the world and all this kind of stuff. We'll get to the details in just a little bit, but perhaps you're coming at it and you've got some questions. So let me just give you a couple of the disclaimers. Number one, the devil is real. This is an encounter that Jesus has not with himself, but with the devil. We're told that on a number of occasions. You could call him Satan. You could call him the devil. In one passage, it calls him the tempter. In the book of Job, it calls him the accuser. In the book of Revelation, it calls him the great dragon or the great serpent. He's got a lot of different names, but... He's the adversary. He's the one who lies to us. And he's real. And he has tempted Jesus. Number two, these temptations were real for Jesus. Sometimes people say, ah, Jesus is the son of God. He can't be tempted to sin. Why would he ever be tempted to sin? And you look at the specifics of these temptations, turning bread and turning stones into bread. Why would that be a temptation for someone with the power of God at his disposal? How could that possibly be a temptation? Well, I want to let you know these are real temptations temptations because as we're about to see the temptations that he faces are far bigger and far deeper than just what we've we've come to think of them as number three these temptations are real for you too sometimes people are like well satan has never asked me to worship him so why is that a temptation for me? Satan's never asked me to turn stones to bread. You know, uh, how could I relate to this temptation at all? And so people jump through a bunch of different hoops to try to make these temptations relate to them. And, and maybe I'm doing some hoop jumping today, but I hope by the end of our time together, you will see that these temptations apply to you too. Because number four, this is a master class in dealing with temptation. And it's different from what you probably already thought. Let's dig into it. It says this, verse four. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, which I can't even imagine doing, he was hungry. That's an understatement. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. This first temptation, we can call it turning stones into bread, but I've always wondered as a kid, you know, why is this wrong? John the Baptist just said that God can turn stones into anything that might serve him. If you're not going to serve him, God can turn a stone into something that will serve him. 
John had just used that same basic analogy. Jesus is the one that God himself said, this is my son. He has the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit communicated to Saul, do whatever your hand finds to do, the Lord is with you. Jesus has the power of the Almighty God. He is God in the flesh. He has the power to turn stones into bread. He invented stones. Jesus invented atoms. Jesus invented gravity. He invented all the things that make up stones and make up bread. He invented all the stuff. There is nothing about Jesus turning a stone into bread that seems sinful. And in fact, there's nothing about Jesus at the end of 40 days and 40 nights of fasting deciding to eat something that would be sinful. There's nothing in the passage that says the Spirit told Jesus 41 days. You gotta make it to 41. There's nothing about that. And so I've always wondered, what is this? How is this a sin? Well, there's just one one possible way of looking at that. You see, if we take what Satan told Jesus and we simplify it down into the smallest possible number of words, basically what Satan is saying to Jesus is this. Serve yourself. Jesus, you've got all the power in the universe. It's no skin off your nose to turn stones into bread. You've had 40 days of fasting. You've done it. You've accomplished it. We're we're done with the whole fasting thing. Let's break the fast with some fun. Use your power to serve yourself. After all, God can turn stones into anything that would serve him. So you can turn these stones into something that would serve you. See, what Satan is actually saying to Jesus is serve yourself. And what Jesus says in response is fascinating. He says, man does not live on bread alone. And so, you know, I was raised, I kind of thought, uh, I mean, I was never taught this, but I just kind of believed that Jesus was making a statement about food and he was making a statement about fasting. Well, since I don't need to live on bread and I can just live somehow magically on the word of God, then, you know, maybe I'm okay. I can just continue on with the fasting thing. And so Jesus is using that, you know, maybe that helps him not be as hungry I, I don't know. And then other times in my life, people have told me, no, this is, this is how you deal with temptation. You just have to memorize scripture. If you have the right scripture memorized, then when the temptation comes to you, you can spout that scripture back at the temptation and like a magical formula, like a magical incantation, the temptation will just dissipate. And you know what? That's not off base too much. It's happened to me. I've been in those moments where I was tempted to do something and then God brought a memory verse to my mind and I quoted the memory verse. I'm like, oh, okay, yeah. Now I don't really want to do that thing anymore because I've got a different perspective on some stuff. It happens. I encourage you, read your Bible, memorize your Bible, use the Bible to confront everyday situations. But that's not what's going on here. Jesus isn't quoting the Bible to get some sort of magical power out of saying the words. Do you know how I know that? Because I believe Jesus knew the context of the verse he was quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8. In Deuteronomy, the people of Israel had just come through 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy, people had just come through 40 years of eating nothing but manna, this magical bread that God dropped down from heaven every single night. 
And in Deuteronomy 8, Moses is talking about manna. Take a look at this. Moses says, God humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you, check this, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothes did not wear out, and your feet did not swell during these 40 years. Let's just be clear. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses is not talking about memorizing the Bible. The Bible didn't even exist in Deuteronomy chapter 8. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, all they had was what Moses had already written. That's it. That's all they had. What Moses had told them from the mountain, what Moses had already written down, that was the entirety of their scripture. And yeah, I'm sure God wanted them to learn that stuff and memorize some of those things, but Moses isn't talking about memorizing God's word to use as an antidote for temptation. What he's saying there in that passage is that God himself is the source of your food. You were hungry, God gave you magical manna. You were wandering in the wilderness, God gave you shoes that didn't wear out. You were wandering in the wilderness, God gave you feet that could endure. See, what Moses is saying back then is not that you need to memorize God's word. What you need to learn is that he is saying God chooses what you get. Or the way Jesus is using it, I think Jesus is saying this, my father gives me whatever I need. Now that's a powerful sentence. I'm imagining right now you might be thinking of something that you've recently been given that you didn't want. An experience, a problem, a circumstance, a situation... You were just given something that you didn't want. But imagine saying out loud, my father gives me whatever I need. I imagine there's something in your life that you've been missing. Something that you do want. That you wish God would bring into your life and he hasn't brought it into your life yet. And you're tempted to find a new way to get it. You're tempted to find a new opportunity to acquire it. You would use all the resources that are at your disposal to serve yourself. But Jesus says, my father gives me whatever I need. And you can say, my father gives me whatever I need. Think about the power that has to defeat temptation. Not saying the words, but believing the words. If God truly gives you everything that you need, if God truly gives me everything that I need, if God truly gives us everything that we need, then I am never tempted to get anything. I'm never tempted to experience anything. I'm never tempted to go and do something. I'm never tempted to use my own power and my own authority to serve myself. I am never tempted for any of those things because if my Father gives me everything that I need, then anything I don't have is something I don't need. And anything I acquire for myself is something I shouldn't have. It's a powerful phrase. Satan says, serve yourself. Jesus says, no, my Father gives me whatever I need. And so, Satan tries another technique. 
The devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. Now, of course, Satan's like, yeah, just kill yourself. That'll do the trick. If you're the son of God, let's just end this thing right now. But that's not his point. He says, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now my mom used this passage when I was a kid to encourage me never to go skydiving. She said skydiving was wrong. Skydiving was sinful because skydiving was testing God. I think it's probably testing the pilot and the parachute. But my mom said it was testing God. And for that reason, she also told me never to ride a motorcycle. So anyway, I'm not saying that my mom's theology was 100% correct all of the time I was being raised. She did a great job most of the time. But every now and then, I think she was using the scripture just to try to you know, keep herself from worrying about my safety. So anyway, I grew up kind of thinking, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Well, Jesus jumping off a high place, you know, skydiving, similar kind of thing. But that's not the point. What's weird is that Satan is quoting a Bible passage here. And man, I tell you, you have to read Psalm 91 today. If I get some time this week, I'm going to write a blog post on Psalm 91 and how it intersects with our life and how it intersects with this temptation here. But the point is Psalm 91 doesn't say anything about the Messiah. Psalm 91 is what what Satan is quoting here. And it says nothing about the king, nothing about the Messiah. What Psalm 91 says is Every believer, anyone who's a follower of God, anyone who's a faithful follower of God will have God's protection. He will command his angels concerning you. Psalm 91 is this blanket promise that God is going to care for all of us. And then the question is, well, does God actually do that? But see, Satan is trying to go one step farther Satan takes a passage that is supposed to apply to everybody. God will keep anyone safe. And then he says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, how much even more should this apply to you? See, I think what Satan is actually saying to Jesus is this, prove yourself. Jesus, if you really are the son of God, then prove yourself. The people would say this when Jesus is hanging on the cross. Jesus, if you would come down from the cross, then we'd believe in you. And Satan is just saying it a whole lot earlier. Don't you feel that way? I mean, don't you just hate it when someone doubts you? Don't you just hate it when you know you're here and they think you're here? Oh, it just irks me. It makes me so mad. There's everything in my life that wants to just come down to where they are and drag them up to where I am to prove myself to them, to say, no, you've got me all wrong. Let me tell you all the reasons why I'm so great. Let me list off for you all the reasons why I'm so good. And so they think I'm down here. I think I'm up here and I'm just so irritated. You're probably like that. You probably have felt that before. I know maybe your boss thinks you're down here and you're up here and you're like, I really need to prove myself. And here's Satan is saying, listen, Jesus, of all the people, this is you. If God is going to care for anyone, he's going to care for you. If he's going to protect anyone, he's going to protect you. If you really are the son of God, just prove it a little bit. And what's interesting is that Jesus says, don't put the Lord your God to the test. 
I find that interesting. You see, Satan said you need to prove yourself. In other words, Jesus, here's a test for you. And Jesus' response is, don't put God to the test. I think to make it more clear, Satan is saying, prove yourself. And Jesus is saying, God needs no proof. In a small way, I think what Jesus is saying here is that he's God. He's accepting that for himself. Of course, it's true. We've also seen signs of it already in his baptism and beforehand. We've seen signs of it all along. Jesus knows this to be true, but he's just egging Satan on with this same basic idea. Don't test God. You don't have to prove that God will come through for you because, and here's the most important thing, who you really are never needs proof. If you think you're here and someone else thinks you're here, then obviously you haven't given them enough proof that you're up here. The solution is not to invent more proof. The solution is to realize you ain't there. You see, who we really are never needs proof. God doesn't need to prove to me that he's going to take care of me because he has taken care of me already. Jesus doesn't need to prove that he is the son of God because for crying out loud, God already said it. You and I are so tempted to prove ourselves in so many contexts, but Jesus recognizes that authenticity never needs proof. Let's keep going. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. If you bow down and worship me. Clearly, Satan believes he has the splendor of the kingdoms of the world to offer. But you know what's weird? Jesus already is the king, right? I mean, Jesus already is the king of all kings. He's the number 14, number 14, number 14 from chapter 1. He is the most Davidy David of all the David kings. He he is the king who gets both gold and frankincense and myrrh. He is the king above all kings, the one whom God himself says, this guy, this guy, this guy, everybody pay attention, this is my son. He's the one who has the Holy Spirit on him. Jesus is the king of already. The kingdoms of the whole world already belong to him. There's just one, one, one minor tiny little issue. Jesus has a pathway to walk between being king and experiencing the splendor. Jesus has a pathway, a journey to walk on between being king and experiencing the splendor. And Satan says, Listen, Jesus, let's just jump right there. See, I think what Satan is really saying to Jesus, I think what Satan is really saying to Jesus, save yourself. Jesus, you've got an opportunity here. Not many people get this opportunity. Yeah, you're the king, but we all know the pathway you're going to have to walk. But I'll tell you what. If you just once, just worship me. Tell me how great I am. 
just once. Then I'll help you skip all that other stuff. And you can be king right now. You can save yourself. But you know what Jesus does? He says, away from me, Satan. For it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. For much of my life, I thought this was a passage about don't worship, don't worship foreign gods, don't worship idols, don't worship other gods. That this was a passage about worship, but I think it's more a passage about service. Because see, Jesus doesn't say, Satan, I'm not going to worship you, I'm only going to worship God. What Jesus says is, I'm going to worship God and serve him only. Satan says, save yourself. Jesus says, nope. I'm going to serve. I'm not going to serve myself. I'm going to serve my God. The greatest passage of worship ever shows up in the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew chapter 26 We read these words, going a little farther, Jesus fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My Father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus knows that his journey doesn't go to splendor, it goes through pain to splendor. It goes through the cross to the glory. And Jesus says, I won't shortcut that for anything. Jesus says, I'm going to go through the cross, not because of me, but because I will worship my Father and serve him only. What I want, Jesus would say, is to shortcut the process, but not what I want, what you want, Father. At every point along the way, Jesus proves himself to be a selfless individual. And once the devil realizes he's not going to make any headway with Jesus, he leaves him. And the angels came and attended him. A picture for me of victory. The angels of God have come to attend to Jesus. But it's also a picture of complete exhaustion. Jesus is such in terrible shape that God needs angels to come. And be with him. Listen. This whole picture, from the baptism through the temptations, has shown us one thing abundantly clear about who Jesus is. Jesus is the king. He's the greatest king. He's the divine king. He's the son of God in flesh. He's the anointed one. The Holy Spirit is upon him. The power of God, the judgment of God, everything that has ever been promised to any king ever in all of history is there living in Jesus. He is the supreme creator of the universe who now walks on earth as the king. And yet... He doesn't serve himself. He doesn't prove himself. He doesn't even save himself. And if our king doesn't serve, prove, or save himself, then neither should we. Our temptation is not for bread. Our temptation is not to jump off a cliff and not die. Our temptation is not to worship Satan and then get some sort of 
reward. Our temptation is always to seek self. That's why John says, repent. The kingdom is coming. If I were to summarize John's words, I'd probably say, get over yourself. The king's coming. Too much of our lives we spend worrying about ourselves, our position, where we stand in relationship to other people, what we're doing and all this kind of stuff. And John would say, and Jesus would say too, I think, get over yourself. The king is here. And our king doesn't serve himself, doesn't prove himself, doesn't save himself. And if our king doesn't do that stuff, neither should we. Let me encourage you, you don't need anyone other than Jesus. You don't need anyone other than Jesus. He is the greatest king. But you desperately need Jesus. Who he is will solve your temptation problem. Who he is will solve your relationship problem. Who he is will solve your worry problem. Because we do all these other things because we're looking out for ourselves. And Jesus says, no, let it go. I'm the king. I can be in charge. You can trust me because I will never look out for myself. I will only and always love you as I serve my Father. That's our King. That's who we have as our King. I hope this week you can embrace that. I hope this week you can embrace the idea that my King wins when he is selfless and he is always selfless. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.